Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Alistair, you wanted to focus this first on Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor of the Exchequer's autumn statement that's coming up, which looks like it might involve some big cash giveaways. And then you also wanted to engage us on the question of the way that Gaza is still playing into British politics, particularly abuse of Labour MPs. Elon Musk in trouble on X, or what used to be called Twitter, for his anti-Semitic comments. We were going to look again at where Russia was with Ukraine, what's happened to the Ukraine war. Maybe first thing, tell us a little bit about why you've been interested in the autumn statement. Why do autumn statements matter? Are these one of the big events of the year? And if so, why so? Because there aren't that many moments in the calendar where a minister or prime minister can stand up in parliament and make announcements, changes, policy ideas that really have the potential to shift the dial. I would argue that when we were in power, Gordon Brown's budgets and autumn statements were big strategic landmarks most of the time. Now, they would fit into our overall strategic plan, narrative, call it what you will. That's why they're important. And Alison, am I, am I right that autumn statements are relatively recent and that they were quite yeah. controversial? Chances used to do it once a year? I mean, the budget used to be the kind of main treasury event. And I think it's fair to say that they now see them almost on a par. I'd say the budget is probably still the, the number one, but it's kind of Champions League against Premier League. That's a football analogy. Yeah, football or reference. Yeah, that I'm struggling with a bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But so it's a big moment in the calendar. Now, I think this is a pretty, pretty difficult big moment because the economy is not doing terribly well. Tax is very high. Growth is low. The record over 13 years has been pretty grim. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for any chancellor to come in and say, right, okay, here's where you think I was going, but here's where I'm actually going. And this is going to get you all terribly excited and change the weather. And the rabbit out of the hat that he may try to pull is that largely because of inflation, he's ended up with £25 billion more than he was expecting to have. And this is basically because as wages have gone up, and wages have gone up quite steeply, you know, 5.7% in 2022, 7.7% in 2023 in Britain. We're talking private sector wages. Well, even public sector wages have gone up over 7%. So there's a, been a big jump in wages in general. And he, at the same time, he's frozen the thresholds on income tax and national insurance. So as a result, more and more people are now paying tax. We're going to end up with a fifth of the workforce paying the 40% tax rate, millions more entering these different tax bans for the first time, which gives him this money. And so there's been quite a lot of excitement that people will have picked up in the media over the last week about what he's going to do with it. And clearly, they have been briefing out, they being presumably number 10, number 11, the chancellor's office, briefing out that they're going to be using it to cut taxes. And they've definitely briefed out to some people that they're going to use it to cut inheritance tax. Now, give me the sense first of why they might set about raising expectations, building expectations of tax cuts a week before the event. Well, partly because of the pressure that they're under. I think one of the problems with this autumn statement and pretty much anything that happens inside the Conservative Party at the moment is it's sort of playing out through the power plays of these various factions that we that we talk about a lot. And the kind of Braverman wing of the Conservative Party has been banging on about the need to cut taxes for some time. 
Now, taxes are very, very high. Taxes a share of what we put into the economy is higher than any time since the late 1940s. So you can see why any government might want to cut them. The question is whether that is the right choice. But why they float these ideas, and there was a time when chancellors who floated anything got the sack. You remember Hugh Dalton got the sack for confirming something that was in the budget to an Evening Standard journalist, even though he was telling him just before making the statement and it wouldn't appear in print until after he'd made the statement. He still had to resign for that. And there's an important principle on that, isn't there, which is that theoretically you could do insider trading. You could have a Absolutely. huge impact on the market because some of these changes in the budgets happen at the instant the chancellor speaks. But if you yeah. were to give someone a few days warning, they could make a fortune. And I suspect that they do. Uh, and that is why insider trading is frowned upon. And it's why, particularly around budgets and financial statements, you have anything that's deemed to be market sensitive, you're meant to keep it very, very tight. So they may or may not, for example, be cutting inheritance tax. Why do we know that? Because they've been, as you say, telling people that they bite. Now, why do they do that? I suspect because they want to test the reaction to that as an idea. I suspect now that they won't actually be doing it. Give us a sense of your reaction. Let, let's take you as the straw poll. What's, what's the Alistair reaction to it as, a, as an idea? How would it go down if they did it? Well, I don't think I'm a, necessarily a, a sort of straw poll on this because I've got quite, dare I say, well-informed views about it based upon the fact that I know that the kind of cut they're talking about, inheritance tax, will only benefit those people who are already very, very well off. Uh, we're talking about 4% of the population. Rishi Sunak, if he were to make this change, he would save himself roughly 300 million. Jeremy Hunt would save himself roughly 5.8 million if recent assessments of his... Uh, just to ex explain why this is so, if you're leaving something worth over 325,000, like a house, 40% of that money has to be paid to the government in tax. This yeah. isn't normal. So this is not the case in the US and many other places. But in the UK, we have this thing. And one of the reasons why it's very tempting to do it for the government is that it doesn't make a huge difference to public finances. Inheritance tax only brings in about $7 billion a year. Now, that's a lot of money. You can do some very useful stuff with it. But it's not like changing income tax or national insurance or VAT, which produce two-thirds of the entire revenue of the government. So getting even a very small change in income tax, national insurance or VAT has tens of billions of pounds of impact on the public finances. This is one where they might hope that they could get applause from the right of the Tory party that's pushing tax cuts, do something very dramatic that's not too expensive for them. And of course, this was something that George Osborne threatened to do in 2007. It was a big political moment, isn't it? And, and some people say it's one of the reasons Gordon Brown didn't go to an early, early election because George Osborne was going to abolish all inheritance tax up to a million pounds, I think. I just think that the politics of the of the country or the political economics of the country has changed substantially. Just remind us of the earlier bit for a second. Just remind us of the Gordon Brown bit and why you think it's changed. Gordon became prime minister. There was a lot of talk. He was pretty popular at the time. He had a couple of big moments early on in his premiership. And there was a lot of talk, which I think his people were fueling, that he was going to call a snap general election. Osborne, as you say, came in with a couple of pretty bold big announcements. Of which, weirdly, cutting inheritance tax was, was one of the big headlines. was one of them, yeah. And at that time in 2007, it seemed to sort of catch imagination in a way, didn't it? Well, I think it was more that it was, it was them on a tax-cutting agenda without necessarily people 
fully understanding it in the way that I think there's a better understanding of it now because we've had a decade of people. I mean, they've been talking about cutting inheritance tax virtually the whole time they've been in power. And I think that what's happened is that back then, if you talked about inheritance tax, cutting inheritance tax, people sort of saw it as a, as a kind of very aspirational move. Whereas I think now that more people are aware that it affects a very, very small number of people, growing because of the reason that you talked about earlier, there are more people that perhaps would be in that bracket, but it's still a very, very much a minor, minority thing. And that therefore, at a time when you've got a million children in destitution, you've got the schools falling, literally falling down in some places, you've got poverty growing, rough sleeping growing, all these other challenges that people feel they want the government to address. And that's what I find a bit weird about the debate at the moment. It was kind of refreshing this morning on the Today programme, Andy Burnham popped up and he was talking about rough sleeping because the rest of the debate, most of the time, is all about this kind of little internal Tory party debate about should it be income tax, should it be national insurance, should it be investment in the blue wall, investment in the red wall, whatever it might be, all about the politics as opposed to actually addressing some of these fundamental systemic problems that we've now got. Well, let's take it back to the, the fundamental systemic problems for a second. So the first big problem in the UK economy is that from the 90s through to 2008, the UK had the second highest productivity growth in the developed world, 2% productivity growth a year. And productivity really matters. Productivity is the way that you sustain economic growth by producing more for the same work. The only other way that you can get economic growth is with more people working more hours. But ideally, you want people producing more for the same work. And that collapsed. Between 2008 and 2019, productivity growth in the UK dropped to 0.5%, which means that average real earnings today in the UK are no higher than they were in 2008. So that's the sort of big background picture. And the recent picture is pretty bleak too. The UK economy compared to where it was in 2019, pre-COVID, is only 1.8% larger. And that's actually even after the figures have been adjusted. I think people remember that was this amazing thing where the Office for National Statistics changed that number from 0.2% to 1.8%. And compared to last year, it's only 0.6% higher. So annual growth seems to be just 0.6%. So not very, very impressive. And at the same time, inflation really worrying. Inflation's coming down, but inflation's coming down because interest rates have gone very, very high. And, and again, I suppose just before I hand back to you, the way in which this is felt by people in Britain is that the average person with a mortgage in Britain is facing an increase of about £2,500 a year on their mortgage because the interest rates have gone from sort of 1.3% in September 21 to 5% now. Which we should perhaps give a little bit of a shout out to Elizabeth Truss. My favourite question, Rory, of the, of the thousands that we got for the Q&A, which we'll be recording later, from somebody by the name of Philip Van Bergen. He wants to know exactly how did Alistair and Rory manage to halve inflation when they had no control of international energy prices nor of interest rates? Was it simply a case of sitting back and watching it peter out naturally and then claiming it as a result of their policy on the podcast? So I think we should take credit for that, Rory. We had <laughs> just about as much to do with it as the government did. Can I just a serious, serious point on that for a second, though? One of the weird things is that the way in which inflation is operating seems to be more of a mystery than people are acknowledging. The Bank of England's forecasts seem to have been a bit off, Inflation has come down much more quickly than they were expecting. They thought these interest rates would only play through into inflation later. And then the OBR then forecasts a steeper decline than actually happened. So something is happening in the economy that people don't understand. And I, I remember, I don't know whether I shared this with you, but I remember somebody quite at the heart of government saying that one of the things that's been troubling for them 
is trying to work out how they make projections, given that the Bank of England and the OBR are really struggling to work out what inflation is going to do. And that has a mm. big impact because yeah. the big call is, do you keep your interest rates high for longer to try to stop inflation, but at the same time, risk crushing growth? Yeah, we should probably remind those who haven't listened to our interview with Mark Carney on leading the former Bank of England governor. He, I got a better understanding of how some of this stuff works from listening to that than I necessarily have listening to a lot of our politicians. There was a wonderful piece, by the way, by Camilla Cavendish, wrote in, who writes every Saturday in the Financial Times. And I think she gave a part of the answer to the, the problem that you've been highlighting. She pointed out that since Brexit, we've begun what she calls a slow, mournful slide down the OECD rankings for foreign direct investment. 12th place in 2015, 20th in 2022. And she argues, and she sits on this thing, the Harrington Review, which is uh, Richard Harrington, Lord Harrington, I think he is now. My former colleague who entered the House of Commons with me. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, he's, he's, he's running this advisory board on uh, foreign direct investment. And something that when I was on Sky News at the weekend on Trevor Phillips' show and Jeremy Hunt and Rachel Reeves were both on the program, and Jeremy Hunt was very dismissive of Trevor Phillips trying to say that the fact that we've had five prime ministers, half a dozen chancellors, eight education secretaries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Jeremy Hunt was trying to say that this didn't really have much of an impact upon people's understanding of Britain as a place to do business. And she made the point in this column, she called what she called government's insularity and incoherence. And that the idea that you can do long-term planning without any kind of consistency is just for the birds. And that we're no longer seen as a, as a, this is me speaking now rather than Camilla, we're no longer seen as a place where you can have the kind of stability that you need for, for some sort of certainty. And I thought it was interesting to, today, I saw Rishi Sunak, we're recording this on Monday, the, the statement's on Wednesday, but they're, they're obviously doing a big build up to it. So Rishi Sunak has gone out today and he's, he's now seems to me to got five new priorities, promises, plans, whatever you call them. They're now, if you remember what the five priorities were, halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists and stop the boats. His big five today was reduce debt. So that's, you know, that's one that's common to both lists. Cut tax, secure energy, back UK business and world-class education. And I just feel that he's kind of casting around. And, and the longer that the Tories have been in power, I think the harder it is for them to keep saying, stick with us a bit more, are we going to do all this stuff? And that's what I think makes Wednesday particularly difficult for Hunt. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the big challenge, I think, that faces an incoming Labour government or this Conservative government is this question of what on earth they do about productivity. Why has mm. it been stagnant since 2008? And some of that, I think, is to do with what happened to the financial sector. Financial sector, both the way in which regulations were introduced after the crisis, and then, of course, what Brexit's done to it. But the essential idea of how you deal with productivity never changes. People talk about putting in infrastructure and education skills. So the Chancellor's got his own little list of four, just to add to your general confusion about all their lists. He's got his four E's, which are employment, enterprise, education, everywhere. And that, again, is, is him trying to solve this productivity problem. So one idea for what they might do with this money, if, if we step back for a moment, and I agree with you, inheritance tax cut seems to be the wrong thing to do, and it's not likely to have much effect. 
Something that maybe is a little bit more appealing is the idea that you extend the full expensing of capital investment. In other words, if a company decides to invest in machinery, they can lay that off fully against tax. Yeah. And the advantage of that is that it becomes close to free for companies to really put in the capital equipment they want. It's not something actually traditionally that the treasury orthodoxy wanted to do. A lot of, lot of the information I have here, I'm, I'm stealing secondhand from my friend David Gork, who was a treasury minister for a long time. Is this one of his new statesman columns? No, I, this is me chatting to him on the phone today. This is oh, me, very me good. swatting up, just in case Excellent. you ask me well all good questions on the podcast. Anyway, one of the things he pointed out is that the, the treasury orthodoxy was always traditionally that what you should try to do is cut corporation tax and then let the companies decide. This, on the other hand, this expensing incentivizes people who are in businesses that, that require more capital equipment. It favors them a little bit more rather than businesses in general. And therefore, I think maybe a good thing to do if we want to rebuild our manufacturing base and our exports. I think that is exactly this kind of sensible thing that a year before, a few months before an election, a Tory government is less likely to do than it should do. <laughs> um, because it's sort of, it isn't that grabby. But I mean, that is the kind of move that I think they should be looking at. By the way, also on this Trevor Phillips program at the weekend, as well as Jeremy Hunt, um, who introduced me to his son as the least tribal person in the country. Oh, uh, I think he was being ironic. Oh. I, I did, however, I did my first words to his son where I hope you'll vote Labour at the coming election if you're old enough. How did he respond to that as the least tribal person in the country? He looked at me in a very sort of warm, friendly, pro-Labour kind of way. <laughs> um, but the other person who was there was, was Paul Johnson of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, who I think both you and I think is pretty on the ball on this stuff. And he was of the view that there is less room for manoeuvre than the media seem to think, partly because debt is still so high and debt repayments are so high. But also, he, he doesn't think they're going to be able to do that much. So we'll see. I, I always feel his, his voice on this is a pretty calm, sensible, rational one. Two quick things on that. One of them is the, I guess, the practice, and the other is the politics. On the first bit, one of the choices that would face a Conservative or Labour Chancellor might be to put that money more into public services instead of into yeah. tax cuts. Because what inflation has done is also, it's a sort of stealth cut on public expenditure. All the forward plans, if you say you're going to spend, I don't know, £40 billion on policing, inflation eats into that. And you might keep the headline number, but the result is the police would end up with less money. Yeah. So, the decision to hand the money out in tax cuts is a decision really to accept cuts to public services. That's not fully acknowledged because they're not formally cutting the headline number, but that's what inflation's doing. I think another argument that you could make is that it's, and maybe this is what Paul Johnson was implying, it's not that much money, 25 billion, given how volatile the public finances are. You might prefer to keep it under the mattress because you don't know what might happen to your debt interest. You know what happens, your growth is downgraded. Do you necessarily want to spend it? In fact, I think, if I'm right, when you took over in 97, you'd inherited a situation where Ken Clark and John Major hadn't spent all the money and they'd actually built up a little bit of a nest egg, which they handed over to you. It was kind of them, wasn't it? They were very kind of them. On the public service investment point, so there's Rishi Sunak today saying that world-class education is one of his five new promises. But I don't see how you deliver that when... Every state, virtually every state school you go into at the moment, where the, the spending is between five and six thousand per head, 
which is roughly a third of what it costs to educate a day pupil in a private school, one of the top private schools. I don't see how you do that with that massive investment, paying more teachers, paying them more, smaller class sizes, better equipment, better school buildings. So these seem to me like kind of almost meaningless slogans unless there's a strategy behind them, which involves huge amounts of investment. Huge amounts of money and huge amounts of time because children take 10, 15 years to be educated and emerge into the workforce. And Roy, let's just let's just briefly acknowledge today we've been I don't know if you've been able to follow the COVID inquiry, but what do you lot learn at Eaton that Boris Johnson can't even follow a basic graph? What happens? Yeah, I don't know what happens. I think in his case it's a he doesn't pay attention is one of his major problems, apart from many other yeah. many other problems. Listen, just finally on the politics of it, why on earth would they brief out that they were going to and raise expectations of tax cuts? in order to please the right wing of the Conservative Party who are angry because the Rwanda judgment went against them. So one of the things that's happened since our last podcast is the Supreme Court ruled against sending asylum seekers to Rwanda. And so the right is angry and they're looking for something else. Why brief that out if you're then not going to deliver it? Isn't that taking another kind of risk if on Wednesday the Tory right wakes up and finds that having spent days telling everybody that wants to hear it that they're going to cut inheritance tax, they don't actually do it? Well, I think sometimes what happens in the build-up to these events, and this may be what happened to Jeremy Hunt when he talked to the Daily Telegraph. So there's the Daily Telegraph, sort of, you know, Braverman, Barrage wing of the Conservative Party. They want to hear that, you know, he's going to, one, pass a new law to declare that Rwanda is safe and that Burnley are top of the Premier League. It'll be part of the same legislation. And secondly, say that there are going to be tax cuts. And I suspect what happened is that he dropped a hint, which they then, in the desire for a story and the desire to get talked about on the radio and the television and to please the people on the right, they overwrote. And that's why I think over the weekend, they were slightly winding it back. But then today, Rishi Sunak seems to be pumping it up again, albeit for perhaps with a more long-term time frame. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of very, very interesting challenges, given that it's likely that Rachel Reeves is going to be taking over what she does with all that. And, and one of the big mm. things to watch, given we're talking a lot about tax, is, is Labour going to be brave enough to do something that we've been talking about, I guess, since you were in office, which is merging income tax and national insurance? Because national insurance is a sort of fake tax. It's a tax which pretends to be for a different pot, but the government's perpetually borrowing from that pot. Mm. And which really means that the basic rate of tax that's supposed to be 20% is actually 32% because it's 20% and then you pay 12% national insurance. Mm. I did um, a huge event on, I can't remember what day it was last week, Westminster Property Association, lots of property developers and builders and architects and councillors and council executives. It was a huge event at the Grosvenor House. And I did one of my show of hands about who's going to be the prime minister. And I won't name the conservative councillors and council leaders who were in the room, but not one single hand went up for Rishi Sunak. And a lot went up for, for Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves. But interestingly, I watched the Rachel Reeves interview in the studio with a group of other people, including Paul Johnson, and Craig Oliver, who used to work for David Cameron, and Trevor Phillips, who was in the chair, and also Anne McElvoy, journalist. And it was quite interesting because insofar as any comments were going out, it was basically about how they felt that what she was offering wasn't quite enough to persuade them that this was like a really, really thought through plan. So they keep coming back to the tax on the non-DOMs, private school, etc. Now, I think there will have to be more than that during in a manifesto and during the campaign. 
but they're definitely in a place now where people are looking at them with the mindset that says she is the next chancellor. That has its own momentum, I think. Absolutely. And you've got, you know, Mark Carney coming out endorsing her and all these kind of things. But you're, you're absolutely right. The, the things that they've signaled so far aren't giving a very, very clear sense yet on what they're actually going to do. Because as you say, the taking VAT off private schools isn't going to make a huge difference to the public finances. It's something that produce a little bit of money and maybe help many of the issues that you care deeply about, but it's it's not it's not the big story in public finances and non-DOMs definitely to its small amount of money. Meanwhile, we've got an economy where companies are now beginning to record quite a lot of insolvencies, business investments down, housing investments down. And the problem is, are consumers confident they're going to spend enough? Because we're a country where 60% of our GDP is from consumer spending. Yeah. Anyway, there we are. So she's going to inherit a, a situation where pandemic support's been withdrawn where it's been this energy price shock, where house prices are lower. What is she going to do to get this thing going? And they're both, you've got both the main parties now are essentially saying it's all about growth. So it's in a sense, it's who comes up with the more convincing, more compelling plan that says this will grow the economy. And I think something else maybe we don't talk about enough in Britain is that the problems that we're facing in Britain, I, I don't know whether most people listening, given our normal gloomy talk, probably would get the impression that obviously Germany and France are doing much better than us, but they're not. You know, France, its growth since 2019 is the same as ours. Its growth over the last year is 0.7% compared to 0.6%. And Germany has only grown 0.3% since 2019, and it's contracting at 0.4% this year. Germany's also had a massive hole thrown into its planning by the Constitutional Court, which is just, it's a very, very complicated issue, but essentially it means that something that the government was banking on for a lot of its incoming revenue, they can no longer bank on. But, you know, it's the, there's nowhere that's doing wonderfully well. Except for the US, I mean, which has grown 7.4% since 2019, 2.9% this year. I mean, it's a different story. And of course, with the Chinese economy faltering and mm. the Eurozone, or a lot of the major economies in Europe not doing very well, Eurozone's actually doing a bit better than Germany, France, and Britain. So there we are on the economy and productivity. And if people want to hear a lot more on that, then our sister podcast, The Rest is Money, with Robert Peston and Steph McGovern. They'll be talking loads and loads about that on the back of the autumn statement. You can hear that on Thursday. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister at that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And before we get on to MPs and Gaza, a little plug on leading uh, for Arancha Gonzalez, who I think was you, you enjoyed, didn't you? I did, yeah, I did. Former Spanish foreign minister, now the head of Sciences Po in Paris. And I thought a, a very, very charming, engaging, both politician and foreign policy thinker. I enjoyed talking to her about her experience as a trade negotiator, because of course, that's something that you know, unless you've done 
unless you've been in the kind of engine room of some of those negotiations, I think it's very hard to understand what they're like. And uh, no, I thought she, I thought she was um, terrific. It was quite nice because we did it a little while back now, and it was a bit of a respite from the fact that we've been Middle East, Middle East, Middle East for obvious reasons. So, should we talk about the Middle East? Yep, that's. I think yeah, let's make a change and talk about the Middle East. I mentioned the the Sky program, and I Rachel Reeves gave a very strong answer about some of these protests that have been happening outside MPs' constituency offices and vandalism and graffiti and. I know that there was one near us because Keir Starmer lives nearby. And I got quite a lot of grief on social media because I was saying that I, I felt that this Green Party, it was like a poster that they put out where they basically said, here's the full list of the people who voted not to end the killing yeah, yeah. in Gaza. And I just think that's the sort of populism and polarization that we can do without right now. Nobody who voted against that SNP motion did so because they wanted more bombs to fall on innocent people in Gaza. Can I come in on this? Because I feel so strongly, and I'm really strongly in agreement with you. But it is amazing how social media weaponizes voting in this way. And this is partly the fault of a website called They Work For You, which is always used sometimes to completely misrepresent what a vote is. So I'll often get, if people attack me on Twitter, they'll say, people thinks Rory's nice, but look at his voting record. And it will say something like, voted seven times to make Britain more filthy, voted six times to, you know, harm benefit claimants. And there's no, nobody posting those things has looked at the detail of the amendments, the votes, and they've certainly not looked at what's whipped and what isn't. Mm. Because part of this is about the fact that, as I think I've said before, 90% of the time you're in a party system where all you can tell from the voting record is, are you voting with your leader or not? And if you're in the government, if you're a government minister or on the government payroll, you kind of have to or you, or you resign. lose your job. Now, um, lots of people think that's a bad system and, and they're entitled to that view, but at least try to understand that's what it is. So the Labour leadership having decided whether people like it or not, that they weren't going to play along with the SNP. And Sorry, just to explain, SNP were, were pushing for a ceasefire, is that right? SNP put down an amendment to the King's speech, essentially calling for a ceasefire. And as we've discussed before, Keir Starmer, for various reasons, didn't want to come out for that. Yeah. And I think actually it was best summed up for me, as things often are in a cartoon. I, I can't remember which paper I saw this cartoon, but it was a meeting of the Hamas uh, leadership and the, the leader is saying, change a plan, lads. The SNP have put down an amendment. And I do think that the extent to which this debate, of course, people feel angry. They feel angry at the Hamas attacks. They feel angrier and angrier at what seems like this extraordinary military response with lots of, you know, whatever the, the true figures are, clearly very large numbers of people being killed, including women, including children. They see babies writhing in hospitals and they want it to stop. The idea that because a Labour MP did not vote in support of an SNP amendment, put down, frankly, for, I'm not saying it's not down, it's not what they believe. Of course they believe it, but they're also putting it down for their own internal political reasons as well. And the idea that that then is an excuse for these hundreds of people to march on MPs, to vandalize their offices, to threaten them and their families. I just think it's, it's wrong. And I think it puts lots of decent people off from even thinking about politics. I think one thing where I might disagree agreeably with you is that you, you've said a couple of times over the last few weeks, and you, you've just done it again with a cartoon, that something to bear in mind is nobody really cares too much 
what Britain does or doesn't do. No, I didn't. Well, I don't. Anyway, I, if I can have a stab at this, I'd say Keir Starmer's still got to take a position that he believes in. I mean, it's not an excuse to say, well, it doesn't really matter what I say anyway, because Britain's not as important as everyone thinks. So it doesn't matter whether I call for a ceasefire or don't call for a ceasefire. Because I think European countries together calling for a ceasefire, if they did, would have influence. For sure. But where I agree with you really, really strongly is that this thing of marching on people's offices and the incredible hate on social media. And I think it's the uh, Joe Stevens in Cardiff, her entire office daubed in red paint with mm. blood on her hands. Naz Shah saying she's been the victim of a lot of his Islamophobic attacks. It's really horrifying. And this is all about a story we keep coming back to, which is the way in which social media has become this extreme, horrifying, polarizing force, which basically destroys all trust or faith in political systems and just turns everyone into sort of rage. I, I, I was talking to a, an academic just before we recorded this podcast, who said to me, Rory, I want to set up a system which measures every MP on whether they tell the truth. And if they lie on one thing, it means they can't be trusted. And if they can't be trusted, the public should turn against them. And I was listening to him and I thought, okay, on the one hand, I sympathize with you. We all want much more honesty in politics. On the other hand, that sounded to me like an even more intense, highly aggressive puritanical view stoked by social media where you get one strike and you're out. This is your voting record. You're an evil person. We're going to spray your office. You're cancelled, etc. I think the Green Party are perfectly good, do lot, believe the right things in a lot of issues. and But I just think that was a form of politics that I think we need to, we can, particularly in this time, lots of people took to social media to sort of attack me over it because I made the point, you and I are speaking later this week at um, an event in memory of Joe Cox, yeah. who was murdered. David Amos was murdered. And, and they were saying, what you were saying is that the Green Party are inciting people to murder these MPs. I wasn't saying that at all. They also said, you printed a list of all the MPs who voted against a people's vote, which I did. But what I didn't do was say that, or sort of suggest that we, there was something kind of dishonorable about it. What I was doing was to make sure that people knew I was literally publishing it as a piece of public information. Now, the Greens would probably argue they were doing the same. But I think when you're saying, here is a full list of the MPs who voted not to end the killing in Gaza, that was the phrase they used. They voted not to end the killing in Gaza, like it was their choice. Yeah. And this is this is all comes back to this point about context, doesn't it? Because the one, of course, that we were sort of discussing and slightly disagreeing about a few months ago was Keir Starmer putting out that tweet saying, do you think that people who sexually abuse children should go to jail? Rishi Sunak doesn't. You know, under the conservative mm. government, 1,600 of these people haven't been sent to jail. Yeah, and again, uh, yeah. it's all about giving a little bit of context and a little bit of respect to the possibility that politicians are not actually homicidal maniacs, or if they're voting in a particular way or passing a law in a particular way, it's because they really want to murder people or let off sexual abusers of children or have people murdered in Gaza, that actually there might be good conscience reasons for people voting in a certain way. I saw Keir Starmer recently at the at Burnley Arsenal game. And I mean, you know, it was obvious talking to him just for a few minutes that one, he, I think, really does feel deeply that People have to stand up for Israel and the Jewish community at the moment. But secondly, it feels that 
you know, what is happening as a consequence is utterly horrific. But the point is, he's not a commentator and he's not a somebody on a march or somebody signing a petition. He's somebody who might well be prime minister quite soon and then be in a position where hopefully he can play a really constructive role in trying to get this thing into a better place. And at the moment, I think that the inability of people to understand that the, these issues might be a little bit more complicated than a 280-character tweet. And by the way, talking of which, you said in the introduction about Musk, and Musk is denying that he said anything remotely anti-Semitic. I think the tweet, why the hell he spends so much time liking tweets, presumably just to sort of get noticed, I don't know. But he certainly, I think, should have avoided the thing that, that he retweeted. Yeah. Just to give you the background on this. So somebody tweeted out, the Jewish community have been pushing the hatred of whites, which they now claim to want people to stop using against them. So the, the, the theory here is something called the Great Replacement Theory. And the idea is that Western elites have been inverted commas, right? This is the conspiracy theory, manipulated by Jews and who want to replace and disempower white Americans. So the idea is that they're basically bringing in immigrants. And this tweet was saying, uh, now Jews are finding out what it's like to bring in all these immigrants because now all these immigrants are demonstrating against Jews. And Elon Musk replying to this says, you have said the actual truth. And Elon Musk thereby endorsing, supporting a pretty well-known trope that is used by these, you know, very, very quite dangerous people. And actually led to a big anti-Semitic attack that killed dozens of people in the United States, somebody spouting this theory. Yeah. And so he's now losing lots of advertisers. I don't know if he cares about that or not. Apple, Disney, IBM, all frozen their advertising. And then today he's come out and said that um, the election of Javier Millet in Argentina is a great thing, that he's going to deliver prosperity. So we've got Musk saying that. We've got Trump saying that Millet is going to make Argentina great again. Meanwhile, anyone who wants to see what Millet's up to, you just shared with us, didn't you? Something actually on Twitter X showing Millet's latest stunt. Tell us a bit about it. Well, he's got a load of gra a graphic, a load of sort of stickies on the wall with all the, the, the names of all the government departments. And he's going around saying, don't need education, don't need innovation, don't need science. Because one of his things is that he's going to get rid of 12 government departments along with banning abortion, legalizing the sale of organs. I mean, how that works, I don't know, but it sounds pretty horrific to me. And just to remind people who didn't listen to the thing a couple of weeks ago, this is the Argentinian candidate who has a dog named after Milton Friedman that's a clone that he quotes and walks around with a chainsaw saying that he's going to shred regulations and whose opponent is the Minister of Finance who's presided over one of the most catastrophic economic collapses of all time. It's, a, it's quite a choice, isn't it? Well, and the choice has been made and it's, it's going to be really interesting because you've got like Trump, as I say, Musk, some of the others who've come out and said this is great news. You've got um, Lula in Brazil who put out a congratulation that was so lukewarm, it was basically not left the fridge. You had Gustavo Petra in Colombia, who said this was a disastrous day for Latin America, the extreme right had won. And he is extreme right. I mean, he's a climate change denier, totally anti any sort of any abortion, wants to dollarize the peso. But very unpopular with the Pope. He called the Pope a filthy leftist, which <laughs> I just thought would have harmed him a lot in Argentina, but it doesn't seem to. And his vice president, a woman called uh, Victoria Villa Ruel, she's somebody who thinks that, you know, we, we all, including people in Argentina, we rather overdo the murders of the military regime back in the 70s and 80s, that they were 
just doing their job kind of thing. So Argentina, definitely one to watch. And I mean, I don't want to talk about Diego Maradona because I don't like talking about Diego, <laughs> as you know, Roy, but I just wonder what he would make of it all. Your friend would not be happy at all, would he? No. I don't think so. My friend who, by the way, has a, ha- had a tattoo of Castro on his calf. And if you ask me how I know that, it's because I want to share the shower with him. That's all I'm saying. And apparently he was going to get a tattoo of you on the other calf, wasn't he? But never quite got round no, to it. No, Rory, you'd be silly. You'd <laughs> be very, very silly. Now, listen, um, just finally on, on social media, before we move on to Russia-Ukraine, there is no doubt at all that Twitter X and indeed all the other platforms have made this Israel-Gaza conflict completely different. Yeah to the way these conflicts would have been 20 years ago. There have been 46,000 posts with the hashtag Hitler was right. The hashtag death to Muslims has been shared more than 10,000 times. Anti-Semitic abuse is up 919%. Islamic phobic abuse up 422%. Well, Osama bin Laden has, has, has become a huge star on TikTok. So much so the Guardian had to take down from their website mm. bin Laden's statement about 9-11 because it was being shared so much. And Russia, China and Iran are using bots, state media official accounts, a third of the accounts on both sides tweeting about the attack on the hospital were fake, to just give yeah. you a sense of, of how much of this stuff is, is being spread in a very cynical way. Right. Well, finally, before we wrap, Russia, Ukraine, which is something obviously we talk about a lot. And I remember when we were talking about this probably three months ago, and I was being a bit gloomy about it, you said that actually you'd met some people in a think tank and some generals who thought that I was being too gloomy and that actually the Ukrainians had a better chance, but it's not looking great. No, I mean, this counteroffensive, which was kind of in its full run at the time that I met those, those guys, this was supposed to change the course of the war. They had lots of new deliveries of Western weapons, and the idea was they were going to punch through the Russian lines and straightforwardly move on towards Crimea and, and victory. And we're talking... They made about 10 miles of progress. The figures now is very, as with in Israel, Gaza, very hard to trust all the figures. But the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense reckons that the Russians have lost 320,000 killed and wounded. American officials reckon the Ukrainians have suffered 70,000 deaths, between 100 and 120,000 injured. And yet they've only advanced roughly 10 miles. And the mine, you're talking in some parts of the battlefield, a level of landmine that has barely been known in the modern age. So I, I think there's a, a real sense of it, frankly, being stuck. And of course, because he's a dictator up against essentially a collection of democracies that are trying to support Ukraine, Putin does feel he has more time. And he's got these sort of, you know, the Middle East now plays to his advantage because world attention is off it. Congress in America, polarized, dysfunctional. He's waiting for Trump, who clearly is much closer to Putin's side of the argument. On the economy, sanctions and import controls have had some effect, but they've far from crippled the economy. Their defense industry, their manufacturing industry on defense seems to be keeping a pace in a way that the West is not. And impossible to know what real public opinion is saying. But it seems to be holding. Elite support is strong. And the other thing that's happened, of course, is that other countries that, you know, so 50% of Russian imports are now from China. Russia is exporting masses of oil, both to China and to India. Some of that oil has been refined in India and sent on to 
to Europe. So he's, he's used the diplomatic relations, he's used economic relations. And also with more sinister countries. I mean, I think he's getting a million shells in from North Korea, isn't he? That's yeah. proving why they kept that North Korean relationship alive or justifying the way they've kept it alive for the last few years. Yeah. So it's pretty hard. And of course, the one thing that, one of the many things that Zelensky did very, very well particularly in the early stages of this, was this constant ab ability to keep the same messaging going around the world, country to country, huge popular support. And, you know, we, we live in a very kind of transient world. And there are other, when we talked to Comfort Era on leading, we talked about some of the other sort of crises and, and wars that have fallen off the agenda. And the Ukrainians will be worrying that that's what's going to happen to them. Yeah, it is very, very worrying. There's a good article, actually, I thought, by Dominic Lawson, which we can share, uh, making the case why we must not forget about Ukraine, why it, why it really matters. But we're going to have to see a lot more of those articles in the, in the, the weeks and months ahead. Um, one of the big fights at the moment on the front line is around a place called Avdivka, yeah. Um, which is sort of becoming a bit like Bakhmut, which was the place we were talking about in the spring, a sort of horrifying, sort of muddy, shelled mess where tens of thousands of soldiers are being killed and injured on both sides as they struggle for a, a few inches of territory trying to grab it. A lot of interesting stuff also about the way in which the Ukraine war continues to change the way people think about technology. There's been a huge revolution on the front line in the use of electronic warfare. So electronic warfare being used to fool drones, pull them out of the sky, set up fake satellite installations to divert attack. So obviously, because it's a high-tech war, if you can use electronic warfare in the right way, you can really screw with the systems, the machines, the sensors. And yet it's landmines that making this very, very, very hard for them to make the progress that they thought that they would. The other thing, of course, that Putin's got, he's, he's got these limitless numbers of young men that are just being sent to the front line and essentially, you know, under pain of death if they refuse to, frankly, do as they're told. I wonder as well whether, a bit like when Erdogan had his aborted coup attempt against him and, and it seemed to strengthen them thereafter, I wonder if when people look back, that actually the Prigozhin incident and the, the seeming rebellion, whether that was a, a further point of strengthening for Putin. Well, very odd, isn't it? Because, of course, at the time, you and I, like everybody in the world, thought, my goodness, this is really damaging. I mean, the fact that your butler can, can march thousands of people up the main road and all your troops fall away and they're almost at the gates of Moscow, or they turn around, really seemed like you know, the beginning of the end of the regime. And then, as you say, somehow he's feeling more chipper and, you know, there's economic growth. I mean, it's not, not you know, it's not a perfect story because inflation's getting out of control and opinion polls in Russia are not completely reliable, but even so, it seems as though public opinion is now increasingly in favor of peace mm. and against the conflict there. Um, one, one more thing, of course, which we've talked about before, but it's also simply military support. I mean, the United States has shipped a lot of these 155 millimeter artillery rounds, which are really desperately needed in Ukraine to Israel. Absolutely. And every, this is why every time that the, when I mentioned the dysfunctional Congress, every time that America sends military support to Israel, then that's the Ukrainians thinking, well, maybe that's stuff that would have would have come here. And also the economics of this. I don't know if you ever see the, I'm always amazed. There's some very good reports that get put up by the UK Minister of Defence, which I see more of in foreign media than I actually do in the 
in the British media. So this one I actually picked up reading a, a French newspaper. But it said that one of these briefing papers that the MOD had done, it said that Moscow produces one to two million shells a year. By next year, they'll, they'll produce another two, one to two million shells. Washington says it will produce 336,000. Estonia can manufacture an artillery shell for f- between four and 5,000. And the Russians, it costs them for exactly the same kind of um, shell. The cost is 500 pounds because well, they pay them a lot less, but their machinery is working better. Well, I mean, a lot to get our heads around. I mean, we, we've talked about this, and this is a bit of a shout out to people in Ukraine. I mean, we've talked about doing a visit to, to Ukraine and maybe bringing a bit more attention back on what's in danger of becoming a more forgotten conflict. And I think the, the horrible truth is that Putin is sitting there studying these polls in America and thinking, oh, this looks quite good for me. And I, I'm sadly, I'm beginning to move a little bit closer to your camp in thinking that Biden's age, which I didn't necessarily think was going to be such a big problem because Trump's pretty much in the same bracket, that it's sort of become, you, you know, everybody you talk to in America does sort of seem to be saying, oh, this is a bit of a problem, you know. It is. And it's so difficult, isn't it? Because it's it's both true and also something that nobody, certainly on, on the Democratic side, wants to talk about because the Republicans talk about it so much. So it's difficult to have an honest conversation about it. But his record, I mean, Afghanistan apart, I know that's a big apart, yeah. but his record on the economy and his record on some of these foreign policy leadership issues, he's been pretty good. I mean, he'd be a very impressive one-term president, but I think we just have to keep our fingers crossed. But the problem is that, I think it's a double problem because his vice president, Kamala Harris, is also very unpopular. And of course, the Republicans will run a campaign saying, you'll vote for Biden and get Kamala Harris. So if he had been prepared either to step aside and let somebody else come through or at least come in with a different vice president, I think he'd be in a stronger position going into the election than, than he will be. Jolly good. Thank you. Well, on that gloomy note, thank you very much and goodbye. See you soon. 